Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. In her new book, Scarlet, Genevieve Cogman provides a new take on the old story of the Pimpernel from the pen of Baroness Auxey. The difference this time? The aristocrats facing the guillotine are vampires. But the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel are determined to rescue them, and they have an ace up their sleeve. Eleanor, a lowly maid from an English estate with a striking resemblance to French royalty. The mission is to travel to France in disguise, impersonate Queen Marie Antoinette, and rescue the royal family. If they succeed, it'll be the heist of the century. To carry out the League's ambitions, Eleanor will have to break every rule of maid's etiquette. She'll disguise herself as a man, negotiate with powerful vampires, and evade the revolution's chief agent, Citizen Chauvelin. Obsessed with the elusive Scarlet Pimpernel, Chauvelin will stop at nothing to unmask him, even if Eleanor pays the price. But there's more to fear than ardent revolutionaries, for Eleanor stumbles across a centuries-old war between vampires and their fiercest enemy. And they're out for blood. Genevieve Cogman is the best-selling author of the Invisible Library series. She started on Tolkien and Sherlock Holmes at an early age, and has never looked back. But on a perhaps more prosaic note, she also has an MSc in statistics with medical applications, and has wielded this in an assortment of jobs – clinical coder, data analyst, and classifications specialist. She's also previously worked as a freelance role-playing game writer, contributing to the Dresden Files and titles for Steve Jackson Games and White Wolf. Hilary Wilson spoke with Genevieve recently about her new take on the French Revolution, with added vampire. Hi, this is Hilary Wilson here for the Folklore Podcast. Today I am here to speak with Genevieve Cogman about her new book, Scarlet. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you here as a longtime fan of the Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your book, with no spoilers? Well, it involves the Scarlet Pimpernel himself, who you may recall is a heroic aristocrat who plays the fool during the day while saving saving innocent victims from the French guillotine during the revolution. But also in the story, we have vampires as a natural part of society and also going to the guillotine in France. Um, The protagonist is a young woman, a housemaid, who gets drawn into all this when she happens to bear a strong resemblance to a very important person in France. More than that, you have to read it to find out. And there is a lot more than that. The uh, The book is quite a rollicking adventure. It's a worthy follow-up to the swashbuckling series that inspired it. And it is fascinating to me that you were able to adapt something like The Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, because it's, although it is one of the most famous of the action-adventure novels, um, it is a slightly difficult one with modern sensibilities, you know, due to the League going out and rescuing the aristocrats from the guillotine. 
and viewing the French Revolution as such a negative thing. You know, did you have any difficulties adapting it due to that? I think in some ways I'm actually addressing some of those questions as part of the story. I mean, as you said, we look at the League rescuing the aristocrats while apparently turning a blind eye to the normal people mm-hmm. who, who had a fair amount of reason for the revolution. I mean, though even Orcsi herself doesn't try to claim that the revolution was without justification, to be fair to her. So part of it is that I am, what's the phrase, interrogating the text as well as using it for a basis. And also I'm drawing from several of the novels. If you know some of the other books in the series, like El Dorado or Sir Percy Hits Back, then you will have recognised some of the characters, like or like Florette, or the setting mm-hmm. of the Temple Prison, as having shown up elsewhere in the books. By picking and choosing some of the bits I wanted to work with, I was able to avoid some of the more some of the parts which are more difficult to swear. Yeah, you. Um... The story starts taking place in uh, 1793, whereas the first of the Pimpernel books um, that was published, it takes place in uh, 92. So it's a fair bit after um, the events from the first book, which allows an easy navigating away from some of the more um, difficult aspects of the first book. Uh, I wasn't so much trying to retell the original story of Sir Mm -hmm. Percy and Lady Marguerite and so on. I was using them as, what's a good phrase for it, background protagonists, people who drive the plot, but who aren't actually the main character themselves. The protagonist is sort of watching them move around her or being moved by their decisions, at least at the beginning. Yeah, and she's also having some very interesting interactions with those characters. Um, there's a portion early on in the book where she's having a conversation with Marguerite and realizes that Marguerite uh, herself was not, in fact, an aristocrat of very high birth. And you know how much of that role in society can be achieved through play acting, um, which mm-hmm. I thought was quite brilliant. Well, it struck me that that would be Marguerite's, Marguerite's perspective on it, wouldn't it? I mean... Mm-hmm. An actress comes an actress comes to it from a perspective of someone who's married up and done well for herself as well. So she might view it as just as a more feasible thing than somebody else already of high rank who would be saying, No, no, quite impossible, my dear. No mere peasant could ever hope to impersonate somebody of noble blood. Sniff. <laughs> Yeah, it's such an interesting um, you know, thing that you've done by having Eleanor, you know, the protagonist, be placed into this area of high society, because she gets to form her own opinions about the French Revolution and about the class hierarchy, you know, through the interaction with all of these characters. Eleanor is getting quite a rapid political education, so to speak. In a way, it's being encouraged by the fact that in order to help her navigate the the situation, the League are trying to brief her on the history of the revolution, which means they can't just pass, the, they have to give her some facts, basically. Mm-hmm. And she's also, in some bits of the story, seeing it face to face and hearing about the good sides of the people who actually believe in it, as well as from the people who either don't believe in it at all or who think that there were some good points to it, but that it's, that it's turned sour. 
So she's getting a full round perspective, though in the end, it's not entirely surprising if she chooses to prefer to believe the people who are on her side, at least for the moment. Yeah, there are some interesting things that are happening, you know, with the League as well. You're having to own up to some difficult facts that some of the uh, characters who they might be interested in saving or believe are on their side are more looking out for themselves, you know, rather than any particular cause. So there's some hard realities that they are having to face, you know, as time goes on. Yes, I mean, I would think that even if the League tries to screen its um, targets to make sure they're saving people who deserve to be saved, there are still going to be some cases where they find out a bit too late that the person actually the person might actually not deserve their personal attention. Or the people or that other people are trying to use them to get their own particular favoured targets out of there. We're talking Georgian period. They're all they've all got money. They have to. They're sort of rich young gentlemen, mostly not first sons, or they would be tied down by obligation. What are the odds that their families well the families would either be have inherited money or they'd be basically in, in, involved in India or Africa. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many of them? I had chosen not to go into it, because I would like to think that the League would choose not to invest in slavery. Yes. But they're certainly involved in colonialism. Oh, yes. And some of the uh, interesting revisioning that you've done has to do with including vampires within the revolution. And I thought that that was an utterly fascinating choice because you're taking, you know, the aristocrats who are metaphorically bleeding the lower class dry there in France (laughs) and making it a very literal thing in uh, some cases. But there's not just the, you know, aristocratic vampires in France. You know, you also have them in England. So mm. then you know, Eleanor has to start thinking, well, are the vampires in you know, England necessarily okay as well? You know, there's a lot of interesting things that are going on with that. Um, I really, really loved that addition. I thought that was fascinating, and it was worked in a way that I didn't expect. Thank you. I mean, thinking, I'm thinking about it. At first she thinks... Well, okay, so I have to open my veins for her ladyship every now and again, but it's part of my duties and I get money for it, so what's the problem? And then later on she starts thinking, how exactly am I in a position where I have to open my veins or I get kicked out of my job? Yep. How exactly is it the situation that the aristocrats, you know, that not all, vamp- not all aristocrats are vampires, but most vampires are going to be aristocrats with land and money, sort of healthily attached to the like leeches to the regularly drain money and blood out of the property and their servants and even if they pay a regular wage for this is it right or not and even if they aren't occupying positions like political positions or monarchy positions within the monarchy they still would be having a significant effect by virtue of being a part of the aristocratic crap aristocratic caste. Um, It struck me that Eleanor didn't really start thinking these things and realizing these things 
until she you know has a conversation with Chauvelin and you know his men that by being exposed you know to the revolutionaries she starts realizing oh well you know maybe i am actually selling my body in a sense i mean eleanor is ignorant but not stupid she's been brought up in a nice country estate and then a nice country house and she where you know you do your job you probably grow old in service you um buried in the um, country churchyard and she's never had that much occasion to think about it she's Mm -hmm. looking for a way out or at least a way upwards but even then she's she's ignorant when she starts being exposed to information she just starts to think a bit i mean she could think more but she does start to think a bit well yes and she's you know she's a canny character and that's something that you know um you know marguerite and percy you know recognized pretty rapidly you know, mm. as they start to interact with her more. And, you know, I can say that I, for one, am quite excited to see where she ends up as the books go <laughs> along. So what attracted you, you know, at first to this sort of an idea for a book? Part of it was I was, well, to be honest, I was trying to think of new, new directions to go in after the pause in the library series. Mm-hmm. And I was writing down ideas. And... I happened to have Scarlet Pimpernel and vampires on the page together. Mm-hmm. And then I had that idea of being lemony connected. And it sort of exploded from there. I love that. And just, I mean, there were other ideas on the page as well, like Centripians and Demon Summoning and so on, but that's a different story. I, I love that though, because they are such a natural fit and they weren't, they wouldn't have been an idea that it would have been there in my mind, but they slot in quite well together. Um, how were you first exposed you know, to the Scarlet Pimpernel story? I think the first time was when I was watching a movie when I was very young. Uh, it was one of the classic, ver- one of the older classic versions. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched it and I went out into the garden and um, we'd, we'd been cutting, picking the black currants. And so this black currant case was lying around. So I was picking up on them and I was sort of doing fencing folks, you know, the pleasure, my dear sir, is all mine, and <laughs> being all Sir Percy across the back garden. And then I read some of the short stories, and, well, I read the original book and some of the short stories. At the time, I made more sense of the short stories, because I was younger and they were easier to absorb. And since then, it's been sort of occasional on-off. There was that TV series with Martin Shaw as Chauvelin, that was rather fun. There was the musical, which I've seen, or I've seen the Japanese. I've seen the Japanese version of the musical as performed mm-hmm. by the Takamazuko Review. Um, there's been bits and pieces, you know, that's come into my attention. But it has been something one of the background building blocks, if you know what I mean. It's also just so darn fun. You know, one of the things that yes. you know, struck me getting a chance to reread it, you know, ahead of talking to you, was how little. You know, sword play and action, you know, is there in the original book, but how incredibly exciting mm. it is all the same. You know, it's more of a almost detective story. And it's interesting how they change it, um, you know, from adaptation to adaptation. Because um, like the musical has Percy deciding to be the Scarlet Pimpernel, you know, whereas within the original book, you know, he's that already. And mm. you know, all He's already up to his eyes and rescuing people. I suppose it comes down partly to 
what you, looks good in, on stage or in a movie. You can't necessarily have the long moments of personal agony or personal indecision that Marguerite or others have if you were putting it on stage. Or moments like, well, in the book, it's no bit where Sir Percy's run into Chauvelin and he needs to, and he needs to put him off balance. And so he quietly fills his snuff box with pepper yes. and offers him snuff and then walks out again while he's distracted sneezing. Oh, it's fantastic, yes. That's one of the great escapes that he makes. Yes. Oh, I I love that scene, and I love that, you know, you kept the snuff habit, you know, there in the book. It, it tickled me thinking about how easily Pepper could be put in there. <laughs> it's, a, it's interesting to note the personal habits when I was reading the book and others of us in the series and I was noting down background background details like the name of Chauvelin's secretary or the details of other characters. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is interesting to see throughout the adaptations um, that you know we spoke about just a little bit before you know is how the character Mm -hmm. of Chauvelin is discussed and written. You know, there have been some big changes to him from, you know, adaptation to adaptation, mm-hmm. but they also, you know, they it's easy to see where they arrived to these conclusions. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Well, as you said, there have been changes. One of the changes that's most obvious in recent productions is that they make Chauvelin an excellent I don't know if ex-lover is the full word, certainly an ex-romantic interest of Marguerite. Mm-hmm. In the original story, he was part of her revolutionary circle. I mean, she, she was one of the, she was a leading actress. She was a social wit. She held salons. He was someone she knew well enough that she gave him a cheerful greeting when she saw him again, before everything went downhill, called him Mon Petit Chauvelin. So clearly at the time she was, at that point, she was not on bad terms with him, but I wouldn't call it romance. Yeah. But other things about Chauvelin, in the books, You've got him, you have him portrayed as a, not quite rabid is the quite word, but a revolutionary who was happy to see events like the Noyard, the drownings, take place in the books, because it was all towards building a better France. But at the same time, personal, uh, what's the word, integrity, sort of, Sir Percy does acknowledge he would not break his word. He is one of the few people, he is a person in government who has not descended to personal corruption in order to Tether his own nest. I've taken it back to those some of those traits because they make him more fun to use as a antagonist. You could do things with that yeah. that you couldn't do with the romantic relationship with Marguerite. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how he's changed because, yeah, you know, to a certain degree, it's easy to compare him to a character like Javert in Les Mis, but mm, yes. I f- feel like he has a little bit more nuances to him. Um, than Javert necessarily would. But I could just be reading into things. I think, again, with Javert, you have the situation that the, the character in the book is more nuanced than the character in the musical or the movies yes. they produce. That whole thing about in Javert, I was born inside a jail, I'm from the gutter too, is actually in the book. And it goes into some detail. He views society... There are, two, there are sort of people in society, and then there are people outside society, the criminals and those who 
prey on the criminals, the police, in other words. Mm-hmm. He has basically already consigned himself to that. But, but Chauvelin sees himself as still part of society. He has a daughter. He has a house outside the capital. The original character who Chauvelin was based on was involved in the American Revolution. Oh, really? And now there's a story to write. Well, that yeah, would be not really saying Chauvelin necessarily was, but it really was, wouldn't it? Yeah. He is a more a person who is still part of other things as well, that quite often he gets, in movie adaptations, he gets cut down to just the agent of the revolution of the Committee of Public Safety. In some ways, I think we have more sympathy with him as a character than we do with Sir Percy these days. We have more sympathy with somebody who is dedicated to doing what he perceives in order to achieve the right ends, even if he is prepared to take the wrong means to do it, and has personal integrity, as opposed to the rich aristocrat who claims he is just doing it to enjoy himself. We look, we don't, we don't appreciate Iron Man or Batman so much these days. We find ourselves more attracted to the person who, even if they're antagonist, even if they do bad things, who we can say, but he's trying to strive for what he sees to be the right ends. And so you really do have to make sure when you're writing Chopin that you put some bad things in just to remind the audience that he is not the good guy. He's such a fun character. And your comment about Batman, there was a documentary that the History Channel did um, over a decade ago now. And it was about the psychology of Batman, essentially. And there was a Mm -hmm. quote in it that stuck with me, which is that people don't read a Batman or watch Batman movies for Batman. They do it for the rogues gallery because they are infinitely more interesting. And mm. I, you know, I, I know, I know people who do really love Batman, but I think that that's part of why we're drawn to those antagonists because they often represent the shadow of our hero. Mm. So to a degree, you know, you can see how Percy could go on the track to you know, be a character like Chauvelin and vice versa. But you know, I do agree that we're a bit more drawn to you know, the antagonist in part due to that bit of integrity, due to those odd complications you know, to him. You want to get into his head, but you're denied that. You know? Yes. If you've got a story, you want the characters to develop, change, grow. There isn't very much room for need or room for Sir Percy to change and grow at the moment. But Percy is a very fun character. There's, you know, having a a hero who is equally concerned with fashion is uh, quite fun. But you also, (laughs) you know, there is a limit to what you can do with him once the main um, complication in his life with the difficulties between him and Marguerite are resolved. I mean, where exactly do you go from there? You just continue having adventures. (laughs) Yeah, which is fun if you enjoy the romps, but if you want something deeper than that, then you tend to wonder, as you say, what happens next? Are they just going to settle down eventually and happy life, children, go to politics? But, you know, would you be, you know, would he be comfortable in that position, though? That is an interesting question. I mean, I was trying to draw out sort of interesting things about the characters to work with. One of my analyses of Sir Percy 
is that he can be seen as a danger junkie. Mm-hmm. He wants thrills. On the other hand, he's also a bit of a control pers- person. Yes. He plans out everything. He has all the league sworn to obey him, which is admittedly good operational security when you're trying to run aspiring. But equally, he does not like he does not like them. He likes them to follow what he's ordered them to do. He does not like people going off on their own plans, even if they do in order to make a better book. But that's another story. And as for Marguerite, she is somebody who turned in the sorciers in order to protect her brother, then yes. was prepared to betray the Scarlet Pimpernel in order to protect him, and then headed over to France single-handedly to attempt to save Percy when she realised who he was. My reading of that is Marguerite is somebody who is prepared to do anything in order to protect people she loves. Yes. Which can be possibly dangerous if you are one of the people she's prepared to sacrifice for it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's a hard edge to her character that I think makes her so interesting. You know, I exactly. you know, I wonder about that because um, you know, Baroness Orxy put so much of herself into Marguerite. You know, mm. I, I really wonder about what that aspect of her own life might have been like. I can't remember enough of her biography, I'm afraid. Yeah, but... there's some interesting things there. I've been meaning to read more about it as well. Um, I think that it's hilarious. She was Hungarian, if I'm not mistaken. And it's funny that somebody with that background ended up writing such a quintessential English hero, you ask Sir Percy. (laughs) Like, that's, that's a fascinating thing to me. But I loved that we got more of a focus on the other members of the League, you know, within your book, and got to spend more time with them than with, you know, Percy and Marguerite. Because, you know, they are there, they are in the background, but getting to spend more time with the other characters was quite refreshing. Yeah, Percy and Marguerite do tend to steal the scene a bit when they're on stage. They do. Um, Andrew and Tony owe a bit to my own fiddling around with them, I'm afraid. Oh, it's fine. Also, also, partly when I was writing them, you know the P.J. Wodehouse, Jeeves stories? Oh, yes. Remember the drones? I was seeing them a bit as that sort of, having adopted that sort of mannerism or behaviour, partly in order to seem useless to society, but also partly because they're fribbles, they like being fribbles. And Charles is my own writing. Charles is great, though, and they, they fit in so naturally. And it's, I mean, there's not a ton of work done with the other characters of the League, um, you know, like you said, just because Percy and Marguerite steal the scene, you know, the way that they do. Mm. So that you have a wonderful canvas, you know, in which to fill your own characters and let them slide into the story, which, you know, I have them in my head now. Anytime I revisit, I'm going to have them in my head, (laughs) which is not at all a bad thing. What did you have the most fun with, you know, getting to revisit all of this? I think Chauvelin and Florette in some ways were the most fun. Florette because she is so innocent and straightforward and cheerfully messes up everything she's involved in for people who would like to say, but it's more complicated than that. No, it's not. Just do the right thing and it'll be all right. And Chauvelin because he's just such a joy to write, especially when he's being threatening. Oh, yes. Well, you, you're like, she's fantastic. <laughs> If you insist on being English spies, we will certainly be able to accommodate you on the scaffold. 
it's so fun and it's you know like we've already discussed you know he is just such a complicated character and it's wonderful to see him in conversation with somebody in the process of a battle of wits you know a battle of who has the upper hand and just to see what would happen you know it's mm. almost cinematic you know that sort of driving like the scene where he he meets Eleanor for the first time with as you say the guards coming in first and most people will recognize what's going on far quicker than Eleanor will yes in other words basically sent in the guards to be the bad guys and soften her up and then he can walk in and save her from them and um then act like a friendly father confessor just before he starts turning the screws and saying, oh, well, yeah, I'm very sorry, but if you can't tell me any more than that, then I'm afraid things may not be going to go well for you, my dear. Now, please, just allow me to help you if you'll just tell me what I need to hear. It's fantastic. We've all heard that sort of line before, haven't we? Yeah, and it's, you know, wonderful the way that the dialogue just weasels in to get exactly what he needs. And you know, the moment when Eleanor or whomever he's speaking to realizes that they might have said just a bit too much. You know, it's that moment where you just get to strike. And that's fantastic. I can imagine how fun that would be to write. It is. But it's also, the, he's one of the characters, the characters who are sort of experts at things should be good at them. I mean, Sir Percy can pull off incredible disguises or hairbreadth escapes. Um, Marguerite can coach people in acting and part act herself. Chauvelin can interrogate people that well because he is that good at it. Did you look into any fun interrogation techniques to write those sorts of scenes? None that I didn't already know about. I mean, these days, most of us know about the good cop, bad cop thing already, don't we, though? Mm-hmm. Or about the whole, I'm just, te- I'm just trying to help you. If you will tell me this fact, you know, it'll it be so much easier. And then you find you said one fact too many. So, well, you have to tell him something else in order to help him with the next bit. And before you know it, you're desperately trying to tell, you're trying to sort of help him by telling whole more things. And you're, then you realize you're too deep to pull out. I felt so bad for Eleanor being caught over in France with scars from working for a vampire on her arms and not realizing that those might be an issue. Yeah, that was a mistake by the league not to coach her in some sort of story. Yeah. I suppose they could only coach her so much in the time they had available, though. Or rather, they were planning a situation where they wouldn't be separated from her in the first place. Oh, definitely. I just felt so bad for her not thinking of that on her own, just for a moment. Like, oh no, <laughs> yeah, this is not well, good. She develops as the story goes on, but at that point in the story, she was still get- getting her feet. Oh, yes. It made for a brilliant story. It just made for quite an unfortunate situation for her. (laughs) Yes. This is going to be part of a trilogy. Um, I have to selfishly ask, when might we expect the next book to come out? I think it might be the same time next year, but I don't know for certain. Well, that's excellent, because that's not nearly as long a wait as some of us have had for other books. Yeah. Are you going to... um, be working on anything else in the interim or is this trilogy your current project the trilogy is my current project i do not have the time to work on other things in the interim i'm afraid 
well, okay, I am vaguely thinking about the directions I could take the live, invisible library story. Mm-hmm. But that's more a case of just noting down ideas and, you know, rather than actually doing any serious work on plotting or outlining it yet. Well, that's how stories grow, though. You just have to plant a little seed and just wait for it to flourish in the back of your mind. And then the little wayside flower pokes up. <laughs> exactly. You know, so where can people find you online uh, to follow what you're working on? I've got an online blog at grcogman.com, mm-hmm. though I, I'm not as good at, at updating it regularly as I should be. I, it also syncs. I've also an account on Twitter and an account on Goodreads, and the blog syncs with Goodreads, so that'll update if I update there as well. Well, that's excellent. Yeah, so thank you so much for your time, and I eagerly await next year when I can see just what happens next. Thank you very much indeed. I hope it will continue to entertain you. Scarlet is published by Tor and is available wherever books are sold. Thanks to Genevieve and Hilary for that interview. If you follow our social media, you may have seen that we're going to be launching a brand new podcast soon. It'll come under the old branding of the Folklore Podcast Book Club, which will now be used for a book-at-bedtime-style podcast reading you old folklore stories, articles and books. Lots of people have expressed an interest in listening and in narrating for the show, which we hope to launch soon. The initial survey has now finished, but if you'd like to learn more or take part, then you can email us for details, or sign up for our e-newsletter on the website, as there's going to be announcements on there soon too. Speaking of social media, if you are an early transitioner to Blue Sky, you'll find the Folklore Podcast on there too, so do give us a follow. We've revamped our support page on the Folklore Podcast website recently to make it easier for people to learn about our Patreon, our new way of supporting the book club, and more. Please, visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com slash support anytime and interact if you appreciate what we do in creating free folklore content for everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next time.